is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. For this episode, I am very happy to be talking with my friend Timothy Renner. Timothy is an author, artist, musician, podcaster, and researcher who is mostly focused on Bigfoot and mostly focused on his home state of Pennsylvania. During this episode, we talk a lot about Bigfoot and all the strange outlying stuff that surrounds Bigfoot, stuff like synchronicities, poltergeists, haunting, ancient folklore, and the modern UFO contact experience. And we also talk about why does the researcher become part of the research? And we will offer up no answers here, just a lot of unanswerable questions. Timothy has written and illustrated four books, and the latest is titled Don't Look Behind You. It is subtitled Following Ghost Roads into the Unknown. And that is a follow-up to his 2016 book Beyond the Seventh Gate, which is a great title in my opinion. And that one is subtitled Exploring Toad Road, The Seven Gates of Hell, and Other Strangeness in York, Lancaster, and Adams Counties. He also hosts a weekly podcast, Strange Familiars, and I recommend this show in the strongest possible way. It is amazing. Now, we went on a bit long, so I'm talking fast here in this intro, and I want to keep it a little bit short. But before we start the show, I need to point out that at a few points, Timothy mentions an excellent podcast titled Where Did the Road Go?, hosted by our friend Soraya. And this was how Tim and I met. We were both guests on that show and did a roundtable discussion on the overall weirdness that, that seems to invade this kind of research. This conversation was recorded on Sunday, October 27th, 2019. Please enjoy. Tim, I want to thank you so much for doing this interview. It means a lot to me. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. You're very welcome. Hey, uh, you have been immersed in paranormal research for a while, and you have a podcast, which is amazing, called Strange Familiars. And we'll talk about that shortly. But before we do anything, I just want to say I met you in April, and we were at a conference, and it was a wonderful conference. I think I want to be careful what I say. There, were, I think there were more presenters at the conference than there were people in the audience. So it was a bummer on one sense, but it was all basically either my friends or my new friends. It was a really fun scene to hang out in. It was an excellent conference. That um, the fact that there weren't more people there, either they don't know what they missed, really. Like the presenters were, and take remove me from that equation. The presenters were top notch. I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And then, uh, and then after the conference, you, me, Joshua, my partner Andrea, and Jack and Suzanne, we all went over to Jack and Suzanne's house, and they have a big coffee table, and we sat around the coffee table, and Suzanne pulled out. A bunch of forks and spoons, and I, I would I had Joshua tell this story just of two weeks ago, and I want you to t what? How did that go for you? What was you know? It it seemed so casual as it was happening, and in the, and afterwards I was like, holy crap, that was a big deal. Yeah, I when we started just messing around with those, so I thought these are going to be very flimsy 
utensils, right? When she's talking about bending spoons or bending forks and so forth. So what's the trick here? You know, these are going to be very flimsy utensils. She brings them out and they're quite hard to bend. You know, I was sitting there and like messed around with them. And she said the trick is to get out of your own head. And it's literally we would just sit around and talk. And eventually you get out of your own head and you bend these things. I don't know if it's. I don't know how much of that is psychic power and how much of that is literally just getting out of the way of yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I but yeah, so you take you take the spoon and I or I had a fork and I I am certain I could have bent it if I like grit my teeth and it would have hurt my hand to bend it. Right. It was that kind right. of I mean I I but I wouldn't have been able to bend it the way it's shaped right now. And um yeah, she kind of said, "Okay, just rub it, do the little thing, put a little intention in it, touch the spot where you want to bend, just think about it bending, and then set it down. And just 10 minutes or so, we'll just pick it up." And then we I set it down and we were in this conversation. We we're kind of laughing and joking and the comfort with all of us around the table. And we all have all these stories. It was really rapid fire stuff. And I, at one point I looked down at the table and there was the, the fork and I just picked it up. And without any effort at all, just bloop, it just was like, it was like bending silly putty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I did it again. I was like, I, oh, I did it once here and we did the same thing. Blah, 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 and it bent again. Um, So I did two forks within, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. And there was no effort at all except for ignoring the fork i think was the biggest thing yeah i think so and for me it literally had to you i had to get out of my own way i think um because honestly i was trying both before and after like really trying to like bend, you know put it into a pretzel and i i guess i could have hurt my hands and done it but uh without hurting myself i could not do it but there was that in-between moment where I just got in the zone or whatever. You just hit that Zen space, whatever it is. And I was able to, you know, freely bend it and, and bend it pretty successfully. You know, the pretty, pretty sharp bends in them. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I think it was, you know, honestly, I think there was just a playful vibe around the coffee table. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it was what, a bunch of new friends and it was just, I, we, I, we were drinking wine. I mean, this was not like we were in some sort of like sacred space. I mean, we were kind of laughing and goofing off and drinking. And so something happened and I'm, and I just wanted to share that because I thought that was fun and it was such a cool way to sort of just hang out around the coffee table. Now, you, did you start out doing Bigfoot research? Is that how you got into all this? When I was a kid like a little, little kid. And I was born in 1970. So a couple years, three years after the, the Patterson Gimlin film is filmed. And as I'm growing up in search of is on TV and the legend of Boggy Creek. And I hit that 1970s Bigfoot mania when I was a kid. And I just, I loved the whole phenomenon. I remember there was a book, one book in my elementary school library on Bigfoot and I would get it out every single week and just read it again and again. So that was, I guess my gateway drug in a way to all this. Although I was, I was very interested in folklore as a kid and I would not have known that's what it was called. Uh, to me, it was just ghost stories and, and monster stories and this and that. But I was very interested in these things. And if someone told me there was a, there was a haunted house somewhere nearby I always wanted to go there. I always wanted to see it. I always wanted to hear all these stories. I didn't know that was called folklore at the time. I just, it was just neat stuff to me as a kid. 
as I grew older and I got into actual folklore, I was like, oh, I've always loved this stuff. I just didn't know what it was called. But the odd thing is I didn't have really Bigfoot experiences. I saw a UFO when I was eight. Um, and I'm guessing at that date. It, it seems right. Uh, I didn't write it down or anything. But um, my mom woke me up. <laughs> I was I was asleep and I remember my mother woke me up. She said, Do you want to see a UFO? I mean, what what eight year old boy is going to say no to that? You know, it's like, the answer was an absolute yes. And she took me downstairs and and out in the driveway. I was with uh, one of my brothers and my sister and my mom. I remember, and we were looking at this uh, what appeared to be a craft, um, a somewhat disc shaped craft with lights that that rotated around it. And it was over top the trees, kind of on the horizon line. And the way I remember it is they got very bored after a while. I remember we watched it for, I want to say half an hour or something like that. Just It was just hovering. It was, it was in, in place. It half wasn't an the, hour? That's how I remember it. Wow, that's impressive. A long time. We just sat there and watched it. And everyone else got bored. And they said, we're going in. And I wanted to watch it more. Now, this sounds strange, but I grew up on a farm. I had a very, very protective dog that was literally my best friend. He he would not let anyone touch me or get near me. So, and I was kind of given free reign a, a bit and at nighttime uh, because my parents knew it was a safe place. But in any case, I remember them going inside and I remember being in the driveway and watching this and... The next thing I remember is watching it from a window inside the house. I do not remember going inside. Now, again, I was young. It was a long time ago. But that is the sequence of events as, as I remember them. I remember being in the driveway watching this and then being inside the house watching from a window. The, the same UFO, whatever it was. Very interesting. Very interesting. But I wasn't super into UFOs. I I. I, I was really into Bigfoot, you know, that's, that was my thing. So at that age, the big ape, is that what you were thinking? Big ape living in the woods? Eight, eight years old. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I don't think you think that way anymore. What, when did the change happen? Um, I had, I had to gradually kind of work my way up to this stuff, honestly. Uh, in fact, when we were on Where Did the Road Go Together, Sarai, that was the first time I ever talked publicly about any of my own experiences. And I didn't know if they really counted because I had this, you know, what I always call my sort of maybe abduction thing. And I didn't think I didn't know because I thought well, I, I mean, literally the sort of maybe abduction thing is that's the showing up at the missing memory between the yard and looking out the window. No, that happened later um, when I was in college. And I had talked about it on there and I said, you know, I don't know if it counts because I, I don't think I ever left my bed. And it was actually you who finally kind of made me relaxed and start talking about this a little bit more because you said, well, that's what I say about mine. Say, I, I don't think I ever left my bed. And then it kind of all started to click like, oh, wait, maybe... <laughs> Maybe there's more to this than I have been, you know, I just haven't been giving it enough weight, I suppose. And I started thinking a lot more about it and about 
these things and how they tie together. And even going back to some of my earliest memories were of what I thought was a recurring dream. When I was very, very young, I would wake up, house full of people, I could tell when anybody was up. I could hear my my father uh, downstairs, my father and mother. My mother would, you know, she was she'd make breakfast every day almost for everybody. I could hear her making breakfast if she was up. I could hear my father moving around and so forth. So this was before anyone was up. I could tell I'd, I'd wake up in the morning. And again, this is a recurring, what I thought was a dream and which now I give more weight to. And I could hear, for some reason, I never saw anything. For some reason, I decided it was three voices. And for years and years and years, as a kid, I thought there were three witches in my house. I could hear them. I thought the voices came from the room below me, below my bedroom. And I knew I had to be quiet because I, I didn't want them to know I was awake. And uh, they would speak in this language I couldn't understand. And uh, it for years and years, I just oh, I just used to have this recurring dream about these three witches in my house. And then it was only after I started thinking about all this other stuff where I went, ah, I wonder, I wonder if, you know, because uh, there was a series of books I read called Man, Myth and Magic. They were in uh, our local public library. And it's like an encyclopedia series of just weird stuff. And uh, from a very young age, I got those books out. I would get one volume every week, start at A, go to Z, and repeat. And uh, there was a lot of stuff about witchcraft and witches' Sabbaths and things like that in there. And I wonder if that kind of put the thought, that thought of them being witches in my head. But in any case, uh, now I look back and I wonder, you know, here I'm waking up and I'm I'm hearing voices and I'm, I'm uh, unable to move as far as I remember. I, you know, it was a kind of sleep paralysis thing as a child, um, which I don't know how unusual that is. But uh, I remember just lay, laying there and just trying to be quiet, quiet, quiet and drifting in and out of sleep, which, again, it was mirrored later in life when I had a more dramatic kind of abduction experience. Um, OK, I'll just we'll get back to this, but we got sidetracked a little bit. You were treating Bigfoot in your own thoughts, in your mind. You framed Bigfoot as a big, hairy ape that lived in the woods. Yes. And and where are you at now? How would what would you call Bigfoot? I mean, what would you call what the, the type of research you're doing? The further I get into it, the more difficult it is for me to think of this phenomena, this Bigfoot thing as a separate from these other paranormal phenomena we talk about and B as simply a undiscovered primate or a relic hominid or whatever the the fashionable uh, you know, phrase of the moment is for trying to describe them as natural creatures. I mean, if I have to put a label on it, I think whatever these things are, are the same things our ancestors were talking about when they were talking about earth spirits, earth whites, they would have been called in, in dramatic folklore, uh, trolls, maybe um, these same kind of folkloric entities that we've been talking about in every culture, not just Germanic culture. I'm just a lot more familiar with that than, than some other uh, mythology. But uh, everywhere, all over the world, we've been talking about these wild men that live in the woods next to us. And uh, 
in almost no culture are they considered natural animals. There's a few First Nations tribes, I believe, that consider them natural, but they are by far in the minority. Uh, most of the cultures everywhere consider them to be some sort of uh, supernatural being or, or a witch or somehow tied to fairies or, or the other in some way. And by the other, what do you mean by the other? It's just a generic catch-all term for for these, um, I don't know, for everything that we can't explain that, again, I, I think it all seems so tied together. You know, Joshua Cutchin and I are working on this book, and we've tied poltergeist phenomenon and uh, all manner of other, you know, strange lights, mystery lights. We've tied this all to the Bigfoot phenomenon with ease, with ease. You know, it's, it's, it's not, it hasn't been difficult. We have two volumes on this stuff coming out. So I can't tell you how it's related. I just think it's related. And I just, I just say the other as a sort of generic catch-all for, for that unknown that, that we're trying to figure out, we're trying to understand more about. There's a um, fellow that I've talked with. I'll use only his first name, Doug. He told a remarkable story, I believe, from Pennsylvania. Nay, it was from Pennsylvania, and which is most of your research is focused on Pennsylvania. And he's had a lot of direct UFO contact, very solid, credible, thoughtful, reasonable character. So like a, a believable person telling an unbelievable story. So he has lots of UFO contact experiences. And he has a Bigfoot experience where he was um, at a little cabin in the forest in Pennsylvania, and he was lying on the um, like the, the couch, which was right next to the window, this big picture window. And in the middle of the night, he heard something standing outside the picture window, and he sensed it was like an alien presence, but he wants to call it Bigfoot. And he said this thing pounded on the window so hard and he talked about this, and I was like, wait a minute, if he pounded on this window that hard, why didn't the window break? And he didn't really have an answer to that. And that's something that's shown up in my research a few times, where things have pounded on the window so hard, and the witness will say something to the effect of, I don't understand why the window didn't break. And I have had that experience with Andrea. It happened twice in one night. When we were talking about some very powerful UFO-type stuff, we were like like wrestling with very powerful UFO, angst-ridden personal experiences that we were trying to express ourselves. And, and at that moment, bam, something hit the window so hard, I don't understand why the window didn't break. Happened twice as we were talking about this. Once at night and then the next morning where we basically said, wasn't it weird when that window made that loud noise? And then bam, it happened again right at that, right as we were saying that. Now, so I have a Bigfoot story and then people talking about UFOs and then the same pounding on the window phenomena that, that shows up. We get a lot of reports of, you know, I'll get uh, a call from a from a Bigfoot witness, for instance, and I, I do active investigation. So I'll, I like to go out and put boots on the ground and see where they saw it. And I'll get there as soon as I can. I got a call two weeks ago. I was out there within two days. I want to get there as soon as possible, see what they saw, be where they saw it. And I'm, I'm lucky because I have the freedom to do that. And uh, often I will people will tell me, and this is usually people who have repeat encounters. In other words, where they're, they say these creatures are coming onto their property for one reason or another. And they will say, uh, 
yeah, you know, they, they get up and, and they run across my roof. I can hear them running across my roof at night sometimes. And I look at some of these houses and, and one of them has been a trailer. And I'm thinking, really, uh, a, you know, thousand pound, nine foot tall creature is getting up on your roof and running across to the point where you can you say you hear it running across and it's not leaving a mark. It's not leaving any damage. It's not denting the, the roof. It's not breaking tiles off. Uh, not that I doubt them for a second. I'm just saying it, it mirrors again that sort of banging on the window where there's no damage to the window. You and I could go on and on and on and on. <laughs> this is, we are going to take our very first break for free Dreamlanders. You will be hearing a few commercials for paying members. We will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am talking with my friend, author Timothy Renner, about his Bigfoot research. And the Bigfoot research, that sort of overlaps into all kinds of other stuff. Just before the break, he was talking about Bigfoot running across people's roofs, the, the roofs of their home. And that seems like a fairly common thing. And I think I have a few stories about people who say, oh, the owls were on the roof. I could hear them on the roof. I could hear them walking around on the roof. Now, owls pretty little. And so one woman did say, yes, she had a metal roof, and it, she could, and she knew they were owls, and they were loud. And I'm like, wow, owls are loud walking? And she said she knew they were owls. And this is what she told me. She's saying, oh, there's owls on the roof. They're making a lot of noise. And suddenly, there's a glowing, shining lady in white standing in her room. Ooh. And then the woman says, here, we're going to take you to up into outer space. I can't remember exactly how it played out, but all of a sudden she was, I don't think there was any craft involved. It was just suddenly they were floating in outer space looking at the earth. And there was like, they could see this, they could see this force field, this kind of energetic force field around the earth. And the woman said, that's, that's there to trap you in. We're not letting you out. And then whoosh, she was back in the bed. Wow. So there's no UFO in there. There's no owls in there, but she said it was sounded like owls. Now, I sent her a picture of another witness. He, he's been open about this. His name is Christopher Bledsoe. He has seen this woman that he calls the Shining Lady. And he had a friend do a painting of this woman. And I sent the painting to the woman over email, and she got back to me right away and was like, oh, my God, that is exactly the woman I saw. Now, again, she's hearing owls on the roof. There's no, she doesn't see owls. She says, oh, there are owls on the roof. That why would It could be anything. But she said in her mind, she very clearly pictured them as, as owls. So the way, I try to, the way I try to wrestle with this stuff is that it is very, very difficult to come up with anything concrete. And I am comfortable treating these events as a campfire story and just letting the story stand on its own. And then afterwards, you can speculate a little bit and you can see some similarities here and there. But I'm very cautious to read too much into these stories because there's an absurd quality to them that you must recognize. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it can be absurd. It can be, it's almost as if it's baked in to make the witness seem unbelievable or, you know, as... I hate to use crazy, but, you know, that is kind of what the term that uh, many people looking into the paranormal from the outside, you know, they throw that around a lot. You know, uh, witnesses are crazy. You get that quite often. And there seems to be something baked into the experiences that that almost kind of aids in that. That perception from from the outside, I should say. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Where, And my sense is, and you and I have talked about this too, is there's something deeply personal tied into some of these. It's like, wow, like that was tailored to you and to you alone. And I've had that experience myself where I've had events that seem like, wow, I am the only person who could play detective and could could have untangled this knot, partially out of my own obsessive nature in a way, but um, just the events took place in ways that seemed specifically created, um, stage-managed for me and me alone. And, I, and I'm certain you've seen that also. Oh, absolutely. To the point where it becomes difficult to explain sometimes because as a writer, as someone who tells stories on my podcast, you have to kind of make these things into a linear story so people can understand them, but they're anything but it's a cobweb. It's not a straight line. And it's very, very difficult to make a sequence of events that, in a, you know, make it into a linear story that people can understand, you know, this happened, then this happened. I end up telling these stories and saying, okay, but go back two days. And then this other thing happened. And then it ties into something that happens two weeks later. And it's, you know, they're just not neat little stories that you can, you can just tie up with a bow and, and present. Uh, they're, they're messy and they're, extremely personal to the point where sometimes I'll have things and it, they're just world shaking to me and you tell other people and they just kind of look at you like, okay, you know, that's an interesting coincidence. And I'm, I'm, you know, of course I'm no, no, no. It's, it's so much more than that. Ann Streber used to say something. She had a BS detector. Uh, and she said, I know when people are making up a story and it's not real because if it's not weird, I don't trust it. Hmm. Like, so if you had someone make up a story, a UFO story, they would probably say something very logical, like, oh, like I, you know, this event happened and I saw the UFO land and then I watched this little people get out and then they got back in and the UFO flew away. That is not what you hear. And I loved, I've never used the term baked in, but I get it perfectly. That stuff that is baked in is so absurd that the, that the witness themselves like, I think I'm out of politeness. I think a lot of people don't share the really weird stuff. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And possibly more so. I, well, I shouldn't say that, but in my experience, more so with the Bigfoot reports, because I think people are much more comfortable with the idea of this being some kind of unidentified primate. It sounds less weird than being a big I don't know, or like I'm, you know, I'm comparing it to some sort of earth spirit or, you know, a, the wild man archetype. I talk about a lot, these, these sort of weirder concepts, it's much easier to talk about and an undiscovered primate. And the witnesses will often leave out weird stuff and I let them tell their whole story. And then when we get to the end, I say, okay, where are the weird lights? And they'll look at me and they'll pause and they'll say, well, I did see these orbs in the woods, you know, over there and et cetera, et cetera. Or I saw a UFO one night and then I say, where are the haunted houses around here? And I, an incredible number of Bigfoot witnesses have just turned around and told me right away, oh, my house is haunted. And, you, and UFO witnesses will say the same thing. That's very normal. That's Or you know what's very normal and, and common in people who have... Uh, UFO contact experiences, lifelong contact experiences, they'll say, oh, I grew up in a haunted house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's to the point now where 
I expect it from 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 stories. Again, especially with witnesses who have multiple uh, experiences. Again, with these, you know, I'll call them creatures, but whatever they are, coming onto their property, the weird stuff follows, uh, it, it, and that's the stuff that that I absolutely love. You know, I, oh yes. I'm I'm very interested in the creature reports too, but but I like the weird stuff. Oh yes, that that the and I go back to the term campfire story, and I mean, do you use that term to describe these things at all? Because I certainly do. I don't know if no, but I I I took one from from Joshua Cutchin again, and and he said uh, at some point he said I wonder if it's this isn't all just one big ghost story, meaning all these things are just some part of you know one big ghost story and. Uh, I have used that before because I think that's that's a it's a similar way of putting it. I yeah, I mean, campfire story is like sort of an open ended term, right? So, like a, a novel, I think it was Jim Mars said, you know, like you know, writing fiction is really hard because he was doing all kinds of research into the paranormal and stuff and conspiracies. He said writing fiction is really hard because fiction has to make sense, <laughs> right? So, you, so you write a novel, it's gotta it's gotta have a beginning, middle, and end. You gotta tell a story but these are these are like outside the boundaries of simple stories and that's what a campfire story is a campfire story is you can tell around the campfire and it's late at night and it can be just a spooky open-ended thing and it's not it's not a story in the in the classic definition it doesn't have a beginning middle and end like we can like we want and uh, and I think that's why a lot of documentary filmmakers struggle with this stuff and I've talked to a lot of documentary filmmakers, and they say, oh, yeah. I said, what about this? And I said, oh, yeah, we, we've, we had that as part of the thing, but we couldn't put it in. It was too weird. And I'm like, ugh. Like, <laughs> like, I just, that's, so that's, I think it's common with, I think it's common. I think people self-edit their own stories exactly as you said. So you use the term wild man archetype. What does that mean? Uh, it's, it's as hard to define as it sounds. And I'm not super well-read on Jung. You know, I, uh, I've... You know, I'm familiar with the concept. No, no one is super well read on Young. I mean, Carl <laughs> Young wrote like he could stack up the stuff he wrote, and it would like fill up a full library. So it's if and someone says they're well read on Young, they, I mean, that's a it's a bottomless pit to try to really read all his stuff. <laughs> but uh, in any case, um, the wild man archetype is this idea that that again I've been playing with that maybe. We need this thing, whatever it is, this wild man of the woods, in the way that we need these 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 other aspects of ourselves, uh, the, the spiritual things that that take the form, you know, of these different symbols and and entities and so forth. And uh, I think it's really well expressed in the way the wild man has changed. Part of what I've done in in some of my books is I've I've just collected these old newspaper stories, which I believe they're talking about Bigfoot, and they in the 1800s they called him Wild Man. Around 1900 or so, people become familiar with the mountain gorilla from Africa, so the reports change and they start calling them gorillas. Sometime around 1930, 1940. Monster movies get big, and the reports in the newspaper turn to monsters. They start calling them monsters. But uh, the look of the wild man has changed. Now, I used to put this up to uh, Victorian writers and editors of newspapers, perhaps being uh, a little too prudish about naked men running around in the woods. And now I've actually started to wonder if... um, 
if that's not the case, because a greater number of these reports uh, from from the 1800s have these big hairy things uh, clothed or partially clothed. They'll be wearing a, a ripped up shirt or some form of clothing, or they'll be carrying an old rusty musket that doesn't fire, but uh, is, is still identifiable as a musket. And if you look at the way UFOs have changed, you know, in the, in the late 1800s, they were, they were airships and they were kind of uh, dirigibles or, or what we would later become known as dirigibles with weird lights on them. Then in the 50s, they take the form of these sort of art deco sci-fi things. And in the 70s, we start getting the black triangles. And nowadays we get a lot of reports of, you know, plasma and things that look like jellyfish. And, you know, the, the UFO seems to have changed culturally what we see. The wild man seems to as well. And I wonder if the further we get away from nature as a society, if our wild man hasn't gotten wilder. So in, in medieval times, the wild man is depicted often carrying a staff. He's more like a wizard. Uh, he may be covered with hair, but uh, he was uh, he, the, the wild man is always dangerous, but uh, he was less animal like. He could talk to animals. He was he was that, in, you know, in between us and nature. And then by the time you get to the 1800s, you know, like I said, you get some of these reports, of these half clothed, hairy things running around the woods, but they're still identifiable as men. And then today we just have a big wild gorilla that's out there. And I wonder if our wild man hasn't changed in the way that UFOs have. That in some sense that, that our distancing from the forest has created a more forest-like being. Yes. Yeah. As we need, if it's our connection to the forest or whatever, this, this wild man this in between, you know, between the, the, the wild and us, as we've gotten further away, has the wild man by necessity, in, in a sense, gotten wilder, you know? You're, I understand your argument beautifully, yes. Uh, hey, we are at the half hour mark. We need to take our second break. And for free Dreamlanders, you are going to hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with Timothy Renner, and just before we took our break, we were talking about the forest and how we have, modern man, present-day man, has broken away from the forest. Now, I'm going to ask you, that term, what does that mean to you, the forest? Hmm. Well, I mean, that's, the forest is full of mystery and possibility, and it's, I think part of the reason I love Bigfoot research so much is it just gives me another excuse to get out there. But I think because I grew up around the woods and I spent I spent my youth in the woods. I mean, I would wake up in the morning and just go and just, you know, I'd pack myself a little lunch and just and just wander through the woods all day. Uh, it always kind of held that sort of mystery and possibility for me. And, and I've loved it from, you know, as long as I can remember. I've just been in love with the woods so for me it's just this it's this mystical place where we we commune with with possibility yeah and i mean i just think of the forest the wilderness i mean that's where jesus went right so he went into the wilderness he went in for 40 days and so there's this there's this place of testing yes 
Well, well, Merlin too. And Merlin, uh, it was a great battle that Merlin felt responsible for. And he saw a lot of young men die and he just went off into the forest. And uh, that's when he learned to talk to the animals and so forth. And very interestingly, they call that Merlin's wild man phase. So that, that ties into everything. But it's a very similar story. Oh, how interesting. And he came out with a big beard. and Yeah. And dressed as, I'm not sure if he was dressed as a wizard. I'm going right to the Disney movie where he had a pet owl uh, that spoke, uh, that talked, uh, named Archimedes, I think. I'm not sure. I think that was in the, the name Archimedes came from T.H. Uh, White's A Sword in the Stone. I believe so. You tell a story of playing chess in the woods, in the forest. I would love to hear that story. Yeah, that's um, that's my that was my wife's name for it. Uh, I, I grew to use that name myself, but it was my my wife's name for it. She said, "You know, you're just you're playing chess with someone out there." She's much more skeptical than I am. I go into this thing with, you know, I'm ready to to believe, I suppose. Um, and for a while, I did think it was people. So what happened was I was hiking, and at a trailhead, I, I found. And this is a very populated park. This isn't way out in the middle of nowhere. This is, you know, a county park. It's a large county park. And it's not a very popular one. It's in an area called Hex Hollow. And not a lot of people go there because there are some, you know, there's some legends and, and so forth associated with the ghost stories and and stuff. But uh, it's one of my favorite places to hike, mostly because it's it's you know, 10 minutes from my house. I can get there quickly. I was hiking there one day and at a trailhead, I found all of this white quartz, um, just bright, bright white quartz. And it looked like someone or something had been sitting there and just smashing it on a boulder nearby. And it was, they were smashed into splinters. I said, Oh boy, isn't that interesting? I wonder what, why, or, or what was happening here. And they were stacked in, in a very simple cairn a simple arrangement of stones and i i for whatever reason just intuitively as like i stacked them up made a, a different stack and, and how tall are we talking about here like the as i found them it wasn't tall at all and then i think i think i stacked them much you know, probably two or three times what was what was stacked there and how high would that about it was maybe two stone two or three stones high so i mean inches or feet or Oh, I'm thinking six inches, maybe. Okay, got it, got it, okay. So not huge stones. They're, you know, they were small, and they were arranged in a triangle, so so three stacks of stones in a triangle. And they might each stack might have been just two stones high. And there, like I said, there was a bunch of splinters around, like something that had just been smashing these. And I, So I made a different arrangement and happened to come back a week later, and it was changed. Oh, that's interesting. Changed it again. Came back maybe maybe a week or two after that. At this point, I'm I'm not sure what's what's going on, and I'm thinking it's it's probably a person at this point. I just logically, like I said, this isn't out in the middle of nowhere. I didn't think it was anything necessarily weird going on, but it's a it's a fun little game. Like it keeps getting changed, so I changed them again. Now I got more interested, so I started going at least once a week, usually two or three times a week, and every time it would be changed. This carried on for months, and I was taking pictures, and I would tell my wife about it. She said, "Well, you're playing chess with someone. There's there's someone out in the woods, or someone else is there as much as you are, and they're just changing it. And you know, when they're there, I said, well, yeah, 
probably, but it's still very interesting that they're taking the time to do this. And at some point in the fall of that year, I was with my wife and kids and we were, we were hiking there and I said, Oh, I'm going to run up to my chessboard and, and change it around. I'll meet you guys back on this other trail. So I ran up and did it, met them back where we said we'd meet. And my wife said, Oh, I want to go see your chessboard. I want to see this. So, okay. So we, this is walk back up the hill and I'd been gone for maybe 15 minutes. Uh, you know, at this point I changed it and met her and walked back maybe 15, maybe 20 minutes at the most. And when I got back, everything was the same, except there was a great big leaf under one of my stacks of stones. And I, I, just, I did not put that leaf there. No way, no how. And leaves don't fall under rocks. And I just went that that really made me take a step back. And I was literally kind of looking around in the woods like was is someone does someone live you know this close? And are they just like spying on me when I change it? Like, how did this happen that quickly? And, uh, I just decided at that point, you know, something weirder here is going on. I should say that I made my stacks more complex. And my thought was, if this was another person, like if I was doing this, I would match the complexity of what the other person was doing, or at least I would try or play off of what they were doing in some way. But every single time they were moved the stones were moved into this triangle. So there'd be just stones at the point of, the, of each point of the triangle. So it's simplified every time, but changed, but changed and usually changed in the same way. Sometimes it would be knocked over. It'd be very messy. It wouldn't look like anything, but most times it was, it was changed to this very simple triangle pattern. This goes on throughout the fall and into the winter. And, uh, I became convinced that, you know, again, that if, if someone was doing this, they have to be there as often as I am. And now I'm visiting, you know, two or three times a week and it's just changing every time. And I'm very, very fascinated in this. And it was a January day and uh, there was a little bit of snow on the ground, just a just a light covering of snow. There was no one else in the park. I parked and I went up there. And as I'm walking up the hill. There's a very uh, large murder of crows that, that lived in the trees, and I was there so often that they were used to me. They didn't panic. They would announce me whenever I was there. They, they'd call a bit and, and sort of announce me. But this day, for whatever reason, they just went nuts. I remember, that, and they came out of the trees, and they flew right over my head. Like I could have, if I lifted my walking stick up in the air, I could have knocked one out of the air. That's how close they flew to my head. And just the, the, the whole murder of crows just through that. They were all calling. And I thought, oh, boy, that's weird. Um, but, you know, it didn't not necessarily scary. I just thought, you know, usually I don't I don't scare them. They usually just sort of announce me. So I walk up and I get to the area that my wife called my chessboard. And I'm rearranging the stones and I'm hit with this this really heavy, heavy smell of dead animal kind of mixed with skunk and uh you know this is january it's not like the middle of summer where where dead stuff you know you can smell real heavy real easily and i'm kind of like what is this on my way up i had heard what sounded like in my mind sounded like something knocking two rocks together from coming from the opposite direction from behind me um I went to look. I couldn't see anything. 
proceeded up. The smell happens, and then I hear what sounds like a wood knock, something, you know, swinging a baseball bat and hitting a tree from the other direction. And right about that time, as I'm, and this all happens very quickly in succession, I'm hit with the smell, I hear the wood knock, and the hair on the back of my neck just goes up. I hike alone in the woods often. I'm not terribly afraid. Um, I usually, certainly this park, I'd hike there a million times by myself every time of the year. Uh, I knew every trail. And uh, for some reason, I just got so scared. Like uh, I, I've said before, I would run. I would have run if I could have. But my knees locked up. I was that afraid. And if I hadn't had my walking stick to, to lean on, I probably would have had to sit down. Um, and there wasn't anything to be particularly scared of. Um, it just, this fear just came over me. And I'm sitting there shivering. And, I, you know, I've read enough Bigfoot reports to know these are all things that happen, you know. And then people tend to see creatures. And I'm thinking, well, this is what you're here for, like. Try to man up and you're going to get your sighting, it seems like. And uh, I'm really, really just literally shivering. I was I was so frightened at this point. And then I heard three clicks. It sounded like little gears, not big, massive gears. It sounded like little metal gears. Click, click, click. Came from the same direction that I heard the wood knocks come from. And it was almost in an instant when I heard that sound, the smell went away, the fear went away. Everything went back to normal. I was able to, you know, restack the rocks and uh, kind of gather myself and and look around a little bit. Uh, I didn't get up the nerve to to go all the way in the direction where I heard the the knocks and the the gear sound from, but I, I went a few steps in that direction to see if I could see anything, and uh, just kind of made my way out of there. On the way out, I saw. Now I've I've never run into really clear footprints anywhere I've been. I've never had that kind of luck. I find what I call maybe footprints a couple times. And this was one of those times in that very light coating of snow. And this could have been there on the way up and I didn't notice it. I don't know if I just was more um, observant on the way down because of what had happened, if I was looking for, for things. But there seemed to be very large foot-shaped impressions in the snow about 16 inches long that came off of a game trail and across the path and then into a cornfield where I couldn't follow them. The, the ground was just too rough. Couldn't follow them anymore. But they seemed to come across the, the path and they seemed to be about a four to five foot stride. So a pretty big stride in between these pretty large maybe tracks. Again, I couldn't see toes. They were just foot-shaped in the uh, in that very light coating of snow. So I don't know if that was a thing or not, but uh, it certainly got my attention. Um, that was the strangest day, and, and uh, to Soraya from Where Did the Road Go and, and Joshua Cutchins' credit, uh, you know, I had kind of said that's a, you know, it's a Bigfoot experience until they kind of, when I told them the story, and they said, well, if that would have happened in a house, you would have called that a poltergeist experience. You didn't see a creature. And that really kind of opened my eyes. Yeah, I don't know what it was. I just know what happened. The The chessboard exchange continued for some months after that into the spring. 
until I cut myself on the quartz was very, very sharp. Some of the, the pieces of quartz, I cut myself and I, I bled all over the, the rocks. I just, just, you know, it was just one of those cuts that just kept bleeding and bleeding. And I thought, well, this is really going to stir things up. This will really, you know, m- make things happen now. And uh, they were, it kind of killed it. It never really happened, never really changed again. So when you went back the next time, the, the, the rocks were all still in the same position? Still in the same position. And, you know, I tried several times after that, and it just, it sort of killed the, the experience for whatever reason. It just, it, the, the spot was dead after that. They stopped changing. Here's a question for you. Were you at the point when you wanted it to stop, or you felt like, like this had run its course? I don't think so. I think I would I would still be doing it today if it you know had kept changing. How interesting. Yeah, how interesting. I mean, I'm just thinking of a I don't know, like a wise teacher. Like if you do the same thing over and over and over and over again, the wise teacher is going to eventually have to say enough, enough, move on. Yeah. Well, yeah. I didn't think of it like that. And maybe uh maybe the cut in a in a sense was you know, not the lesson from the teacher, but the teacher going, "Okay, this is this is the lesson," you know. You, you've you've cut yourself here, and and that's that. Fascinating. Now, how far was this away from the main trail? This was right at a trailhead. I mean, so it absolutely, you know, up to the point where I found that leaf under it. Fifteen minutes later, I I could easily think that you know this is a person doing this, and some of the changes may have been people. You know, uh, it, I don't think all of them were. That's that's the only thing I could say. And so you could actually see the rocks right from the trail. You're walking down the trail. You could just see the rocks. Yeah. Yeah. You you could, if, especially if you were looking for them. They were probably five feet into the woods, maybe. Very interesting. Uh, in one of uh, Whitley's books, it was in the communion letters. He wrote about, um, he said, you know, he was seeing patterns of people seeing owls, people seeing dead relatives, and ritualized knocking was another thing that, that he, people were seeing seeing or hearing. So I think I've got that right. It's in, I remember quoting that at some point. In, but um, so the ritualized knocks, that's something that shows up in the UFO contact lore. Very common. And Bigfoot and poltergeist as well. Yeah. Yes. So so what are we dealing with? Like what's, we're dealing with a, we're dealing with a spokes on a wheel, right? So all these spokes, each spoke, one spoke is the UFO experience. One spoke is Bigfoot. One spoke is poltergeist. One spoke is the near-death experience. One spoke is shamanic initiation. And what are all those spokes connected to? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's what the term I use the other for, you know, just that, or maybe the other is the entire wheel, I, I, I should say. I use it for, but yes, why, you know, are they, are they the same thing, uh, it, in, in terms of, uh, in video game terms, are we skinning these, these things with different skins, you know, like, like in, uh, in video game terms, we'll say, you know, that that's just the same, the same thing with a different skin on it. You know, it looks different, but it's the same. It acts the same. It does, it has the same programming. Are these the same things with different skins or are these different things that are, that are somehow related? When you spoke at that conference, you told a beautiful story. There's a, On the cover of your book, the book is titled uh, Don't Look Behind You, which is your most recent book. There's an illustration you did that was taken from a photograph of a, is a deer skull propped on a, on a stick? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was uh, impaled on a branch at, at eye level. Tell me the story of that. That was remarkable. Or tell the listeners. I already know this story, but this was a remarkable <laughs> story. So there's a place called toad road 
that is around here and that I spend a lot of time digging into. There's a lot of local folklore about it. And I've met a lot of people who have had ex strange experiences there. I wrote my first book all about it, and I never thought I'd get a second book out of it. And Don't Look Behind You is it's sort of about it. It's also about my experiences while I'm looking into this stuff. Uh, but it, it has a great deal to do with that area. And I was out there with a friend one day. It was in April. And we walked in. I'm, I'm very strange. Uh, I'm a completist in some ways. And I can't just do half the road. I, I have to. I like to walk the entire thing. A couple times a year, I try to do it. And uh, it's all private land. No one should be back there. I have, I have permission to be back there. And this is on Toad Road itself. So you're walking yes. the actual so Toad Road. Okay. It got washed out in Hurricane Agnes, which was 1972. And it's been closed since then. So um, I, was, I was hiking it with a friend. It was, you know, April. And we'd gone in... I don't know, maybe a mile. The, the whole the whole road is maybe two and a half miles at the longest. It's not some people report it's nine miles long or something like that. It's, it's not. It's, it's maybe two and a half, three miles. So we'd hiked maybe half of it. So, um, so wait a minute. You've gotten two books out of a road that's two and a half miles long. Yeah. Yeah. OK. OK. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, there's there, there was a lot there. And uh, two things, two interesting things happened this day. One of them I almost forget about telling because uh, it, the other thing kind of ties in so well with, with the, the other skull. But uh, we ran into a wall of stink, which smelled exactly like that smell I was talking about earlier, like uh, something dead mixed with skunk, mixed with garbage. Very, very uh, sickening kind of smell. But it was like a wall across the trail you could literally walk through it smell it and walk out of it and not smell it and then walk back into it and smell it again it is very very strange so there's a few feet of the trail with a wall of this the smell that you could you could walk through so that happens and then on the way out uh i look down and right in the middle of the path is a perfectly clean raccoon skull now i've collected animal skulls i'm i'm an artist like you i like to draw them i've been drawing them since I was a kid. I've been collecting them since I was a kid. But I won't pick up uh, gory ones <laughs> if they have any any gore or dead matter still on them. I, I tend to leave them be. But if they're clean, if there's, you know, sun bleached, uh, you know, I usually pick them up and put them in my pack and like, like wow. So I mean, I am particularly tuned to that color in in the woods. I tend not to miss it. I'll, I'll pick them out. People like, wow, where'd you, how, how did you see that? I've just, well, I've been, I've been you know, looking for my entire life. I'm just kind of tuned to that color. So the fact that I missed it going in is possible, but it seems very unlikely to me that it would be right in the middle of the trail and I, I would miss this perfectly clean raccoon skull. But there it was on the way out. I picked it up, put it in my pack, neat, you know, and off we go. And uh, because I'm a completist, like I said, I, I, I made the plans to meet him back there in a week. And uh, I, I want to finish. I want to finish. I want to do the whole thing do the whole hike and, and it's out and back basically. It's, you, um, so we made plans to come back and, you know, a week went by, he couldn't make it. Another week went by, he couldn't make it. So it's third week. So we're into 
you know, the time of year where things are really grown up now. And it's getting less and less likely that we're going to be able to hike it. It gets pretty impassable down there. Uh, like I said, cause it's not, it's not a hiking trail. It's, it's no one really should be there. So, uh, I said, well, I'm, I'm just going to do it by myself. Uh, no big deal. He can't make it. So I go out there and I, you know, there's a certain way I have into the road, um, that, that I found my son actually found it. Um, that's, it's the very, very oldest part of the road from the 1700s that most people don't even know is there. And, uh, we were just out there one day and my son just was like, dad, look, <laughs> and he found this like amazing section of the road with the, the stonework from the, from the 1700s is still there. It's like, wow, I can't, I can't believe this is here. So, uh, that's the way I go in. I go in this way that, that no one else does. And I'm, I go in that way and I get to a, about the spot where I found that raccoon skull on the trail and I hear a sound up ahead, just, just enough to make me look up. And I saw something and I, I cannot tell you what it was. Uh, it's, it was very large and it was quadrupedal. So it wasn't on two legs. It was gray and, and black, sort of uh, gray in the center of its back and kind of faded out to, you know, blacker hair on the outside. And it was quick and silent. It was it was faster than anything I've seen in the woods in Pennsylvania. And it was quiet. It didn't make a sound going through the brush. And it moved south. So I was I was walking. I was, you know, hiking southward on the on the trail slash road. Not much of a road anymore. It's it's barely a trail in most places. Really, really overgrown. And uh, so it moved south. So it moved away from me. I. I can't tell you what it was. It, I saw it for a second, maybe it, at that. Um, the thought that came into my head bizarrely was moose. <laughs> and the only reason I'm saying that is I had seen a moose. I was hiking in Massachusetts and I saw a moose one time. Wow. You saw a moose in Massachusetts. That's there. That's, I mean, it's not impossible, but that's, that's impressive. Yeah. It was out, uh, towards the Western part. Um, I remember it was the gate that was, you know, having grown up on a farm and having seen, you know, horses and and cows and stuff. And you kind of think, you know, moose maybe moves like a horse and they don't. They have a the sort of different gait to them. And I remember just like how odd I remember thinking like, wow, that is that is not a it's not a horse. <laughs> that is, it's a it's more impressive than a horse. But uh the reason I said that that came to my mind, I think, is because the gate was so weird. It's just such a weird gate this thing had. It wasn't like a deer. It wasn't, you know, bounding like a deer. It's just this this weird gate, but very, very quick. Um, so not out of bravery. I wasn't being brave. I, I, in fact, I sat down later in the day and thought, you know, if if something was trying to lead you, you, you took the bait. You followed it. You know, what were you doing? You were alone something really big and you just took off after it as fast as I could. Uh, it was almost like I was in a trance. I don't remember too much of the hike going after it other than there was, there was mud. It was very, very muddy and there were areas I had to kind of navigate around like huge, huge mud puddles just so I didn't get stuck. Again, this is right by a creek. And so, so as a someone who's familiar with this kind of thing, if there was you were in a muddy place and you were tracking a moose, boy, the moose would leave a very, very, very defined footprint. Right. Yeah, anything would have. On the way back out, I looked for prints, but at this point, I was not. I was just focused on going. 
and moving as quickly as I could in the direction that this thing went, it was very trance-like. And I, I, again, I just remember navigating some of these, these big mud areas that, that I just, I had to, I would have gotten stuck in them. But other than that, I just remember just pushing through the brush and, and, you know, a lot of the thorns and, and nasty stuff had grown up. And, but what stopped me in my tracks was this, this deer skull. And it was impaled at eye level right in the middle of the trail. You could not miss it. There was no way you could miss it. And I just stopped in my tracks. I'm looking at this thing. And I've um, I just noticed recently. And I, I did notice this at the time. And I didn't I didn't put any significance in it. But I was looking at the photos again recently. There was a I don't know if they were dried flowers or there was some sort of plant matter placed on top of the skull approximately where the third eye would be, which, uh, again, I, you know, I, I noted it at the time and, and then I, I sort of forgot to mention it in the book, I think when I wrote about it, but you can see it in the photos. So I took several photos of this cause it's just like, wow, like this is really, really wild. Cause either, so someone or something with hands had to put it there. And if it was a person, they had to either bring a skull with them or find one and then decide to impale it at eye level. It just, <laughs> I just can't make it in my head work. You know, as I said, no one should be down in there. It's not impossible that they could be. But uh, if they did, it was this is an amazing thing that, that sort of happened. And a lot of people have said, oh, oh, that's, you know, you found a skull, did you? Oh, that's that's a warning. And I've I've heard some of these other Bigfoot researchers say, yeah, they put skulls in the tree that marks their their hunting grounds. You better be careful for whatever feelings are worth. The feeling I got from this 100 percent and this wasn't mind speak. This wasn't a, a, you know, language that came into my head. This is just a feeling. The feeling I got was so you like that little raccoon skull Well, you're really going to like this. That was just the overall impression I got was that that, oh, you like that other thing? Well, here's a nice big one. You're going to really, really like this. And uh, I did not uh, finish my hike that day. I, I was too blown away by this. I did keep it. It went in my pack. I, I brought it home. And the really interesting thing about that is and this has slowed down lately. I, I, the last few Bigfoot investigations I've been on, I've, I've not found skulls. But for about a year after that, 70%, I would say, of Bigfoot investigations I went on, I would find skulls. And I wasn't crawling around in bushes looking for them. They were in very, very prominent places. Uh, the, my favorite is uh, example is I was called on one. A guy said he had seen two creatures on his property a couple of days before. I went and... Uh, they were across the pond and I went across the pond. It was funny. He wouldn't even go over there. He's like, you're going over there. I was like, yeah, I'm going over there. And I did all the normal stuff. Like, you know, I'm going to hold up my walking stick. You tell me how tall they were. You tell me, you stop me where they were standing, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, he stopped me where they were standing. I, I get the, you know, approximate height of what he saw. And when, whenever he's done, you know, giving me the, the details, I look down at my feet. So I'm standing, you know, according to him, exactly where the creatures were standing. I look down at my feet and here's a perfectly clean deer skull just right at my feet, uh, right, right where he said the creatures were standing. So it was things like that that were happening where I was just finding these these skulls. Like I said, I've collected them since I was a kid. And after finding that skull, 
I got so many skulls where it's just my it. I found more in that year probably after that than I found my whole life previous to that. It, it got to be almost ridiculous, the number of skulls I was finding. Did you ask them to stop putting skulls there for you? I did not, but there's another story that may play into that if you have time for it. Oh, let's hear it. So in The Messengers, you tell a story of a woman, and I'm sorry, I forget her name, who said that... Uh, whenever she wanted to see an owl, she would just sort of ask the universe, I'd like to see an owl today. It's a very kind of new agey thing. Uh, and sometimes I feel silly uh, doing these things, but I'm open I'm open to experiment with this stuff. And I, I'm open to playing with this stuff. So this is, so I've read The Messengers. This is shortly after I've read The Messengers. And I say, so this is one of those cobweb moments where I have to bounce back and forth a little bit. Um, this all happens in a cluster and I'm, I don't at this, at this moment, remember the order. I think I'd have to go back and look at my notes, but, uh, I decided to try this one day. I said, well, I'm going to, and I haven't had at this point in my life, I haven't had owl stuff happen to me. Uh, in fact, I think I told you I had a, a distinct lack of owls in my life. I grew up on a farm and i remember being very upset we had a barn and, and and no owls in the barn i was like we have a barn I, you know i, I want to see owls and I think at this point in my life i'd maybe seen one or two cross in front of the car at night you know in the headlights but uh i i read this story and i said well i'm gonna try this except you know i collect these these skulls i'm gonna ask for antlers i'm not gonna ask for an owl i'm gonna ask for antlers so I'm getting ready to go on a hike and there's no one around. So I don't have to feel embarrassed. And I just out loud, I say, I would like to find antlers today. And I start off on my hike and maybe, maybe a quarter mile into the hike, not very long at all into the hike. I look over the side of the trail and I see something white. There's something white kind of blowing in the, in the breeze. And it's mm, 10 feet off the trail, something like that. I'm very upset at this point because I think, yeah, sometimes we have some not nice hikers who leave diapers or, uh, you know, they might clean up after their dog, but they don't take the bag of of the dog mess home with them. So I'm thinking that's what it is. I'm thinking someone tied some trash or whatever up in a tree and it's it's sort of blowing, you know, in a plastic bag or something. So I'm going over to cause I use the parks enough where I try to take out, you know, not only my own trash, but other people's. If, if I find it, I feel like uh, it's the least I can do. So I'm, I'm sort of upset, like, ah, oh, now I have to clean up this, whatever this garbage is. Okay, so there's, a, there's an altruistic thing that I've seen in these stories sometimes where someone does an altruistic, has an altruistic moment. They're doing something kind, wanting no reward at all and not telling anyone. Just keep going. So I get to this, you know, this white thing that was blowing. And what it was was the entire tail section of a barn owl. The entire tail section. Not one feather. The entire tail section of a barn owl that was pushed onto a little twig in this tree. Uh, how it was pushed onto that to to stay there in the wind is, is amazing to me. How it didn't just blow right off. So I, I immediately realized, you know, here... I asked for antlers and I got, I got owls, you know, I, I, uh, it, it just kind of stopped me in the track in my tracks. I was like, Whoa, this is, 
I'm pretty sure this is this is the tail section of an alley. And I went home and looked it up. And indeed, it was. It was, a, the like I said, it was the whole tail of a barn owl. White feathers is beautiful. So around the same time, I'd, I'd go into an antique store. And there was a whole shelf of owls, like little ceramic owls. And I had no intention of collecting these things. But I'm looking at these and it says a dollar each. There's this whole giant shelf of these things. Like, well, some of these are kind of neat. And I said, well, I'm just going to get one. I'm going to get one of these owls. And the one that sort of called to me was this, it was a very kind of folk art. It was the only wooden one there. The rest of them were kind of ceramic painted, you know, very realistic looking. This was a very kind of folk art version of an owl. So, oh, I like I like that one. That's I'm going to get that one. It was about, you know, six or eight inches high. It was bigger than the other ones. But, you know, for me, I can drop a dollar on this. It's a neat little little folk art owl. And I pick it up and I turn it over. And on the back is of the owl is carved a wizard face. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Merlin and his owl. Yes, exactly. A couple of days after this, I'm hiking. And I should say, I'm writing these historical Bigfoot books. I'm illustrating nothing but Bigfoot. And I'm frankly, I'm getting tired of it. I, I do enjoy you know, drawing Bigfoot, but draw one thing and one thing only for long enough. And you're going to get, you're going to need a break, you know? So I was looking for something else to illustrate. I was like, well, let me find something that's in the public domain, something I'd like to illustrate. And I came across the, it's called the Vita Merlini. It's the, the life of Merlin. Like, well, that's neat. You know, I'd like, and I had not made this wild man connection at all at this point. I, I just thought, Oh, wizards, Merlin, this will be fun. Something completely different. That'll be fun to illustrate. I'll do that. Give me something else to do, you know, other than than just drawing nothing but Bigfoot. So this is in the back of my head. And I'm on a hike, you know, a couple of days after finding this this owl tailpiece, the same park, same time of day. I'm going down a trail and suddenly it hits me that that, you know, Merlin has this wild man phase and how I can't kind of escape these these wild men and how, you know, this is connected to everything else I've been doing. And right as I have this thought. I hear it's just something big coming through the trees, like really, like really, really pushing the trees and it bursts out and it's a barred owl. So not even a barn owl, not even the same kind of owl that I found the, the tail feather from. This is a barred owl comes right out in front of me and flies down the trail like ahead of me, like in the, in the direction I was going immediately as I had that thought, it just bursts through, through the trees. And now, now I'm like, Whoa, like what's going on with me and the owls now? And uh, which I, I blame you for. I take full responsibility. Well, which I don't. I don't. So I'm. I, I take partial responsibility. Let me put it that way. So something else is at play. It ain't me. But but. Uh, right. Right. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, so so now I've now I'm having you know Al stuff happen, and uh, at the same time I was getting a uh, another barred owl was outside my house. I just I remember I from my patrons one time I just stuck the microphone out the window. Let, you know, as I'm editing the podcast, I'm like, here's here's what's going on at my house and just recorded, you know, owl sound for five minutes. Um, I never saw that, but I could I heard them nightly. And then uh, so, you know, a little bit of time goes by. And this is after the chessboard incident. I had found another place. I'd found another cairn off the trail. And this one was interesting because I thought I'm going to start playing again. And. So this time, whenever I would stack stones on this, they would just be knocked down. Whatever was happening here, it would just be cleared off to the original. There were two like original, very large stones in the, the crook of a tree. 
and whatever I would add to it would just be knocked off. It would always be just those two big stones. This is a good distance off the trail. Nobody can see this from the trail. So whatever's going on there is, you know, is more interesting, I guess, in, in terms of it possibly not being people. And uh, I started leaving uh, food offerings, which is, you know, maybe a no-no, maybe not. Um, I've, you know, I'm, I'm reading folklore, and and this is this is done in folklore. These are, you know, this is very common spirit offerings thing, and I kind of amped it up to alcohol offerings, and I left a, a little corked glass bottle of wine one day. Right in, so these this cairn is is kind of in in the crook of a tree, and down below that there's a hollow in the tree that I can't fit my hand in. Uh, I guess a little kid could fit their hand in there, but but I I don't think an adult could. So I dropped this little bottle of wine in there, and I said uh, I said out loud again, I would like a skull today. And I hiked about. Uh, 10 minutes away from that. And I found this circle of trees. Again, I've, I've been all over this park for years and years and years. I lived, I used to live on one side of it. Now I live on the other side. So it's been, as long as I've lived in Pennsylvania, it's been the closest park to me. So I've, I've just hiked the entire thing. And for some reason, I never noticed this, this circle of trees. It's in the middle of a field, it's about maybe a, a quarter of an acre of trees. And I'm, I'm walking along and I notice it's like, why have I never been in there like why have i never explored that area that looks neat so I, I headed right for it and as i get inside the circle i see little bits of fur there's a there's a pile of stones in the middle now this is in the middle of a farm field so you know it's probably uh just not anything mystical it's probably where they they just have been throwing the stones since, for you know for 200 years or however long they've been farming this field but it does make a, a, a pile of stones in the middle of a, a circle of trees, which if it was in Ireland would be considered a, a fairy fort. We're not in Ireland. So I've been told I can't call it that, but uh, it would serve the same you've, purpose. You've been told by Joshua. I exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, so as I'm, I see this, you know, pile of stones in the middle, I'm, I'm, I'm heading up it and I start seeing little bits of fur all around on the stones. And I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, huh, something's, something's been killed here. And then uh, about halfway up this pile of stones, I see a groundhog head and it was freshly killed and uh, just the head, the, no body there. And the, the, the jaw was ripped off and it was absolutely a fresh kill. So I asked for a skull and, and I got a skull. The problem was it was covered in gore and, uh, I did not take that. I didn't, it, it's, you know, I didn't, like I said, I don't like that. I don't, I'm not, I'm not into gore and things like that. Um, but I wasn't specific in the way I asked, I suppose. I, I asked for a skull and I got a skull. It was just covered in, in, in meat still. I backed out of this circle of trees and sort of, you know, kind of frightened, shocked that, that I was given what I asked for. You know, I, I realized it. I was like, wow, you asked for that. You got it. Uh, it's not the form that you thought it would take, but, but you certainly got a skull. And as I backed out of there, I kind of looked around and realized that I was at my chessboard. I'd sort of backed up to the area where, where that chessboard area was. Not only that, but that circle of trees would have been the area where I heard those those wood knocks and that that kind of gear sound coming from. 
So I didn't put that together at all until, you know, I had almost literally backed into the trailhead where, uh, where my original chessboard was. You are interacting with something. Yes. <laughs> no doubt. Okay. Yes. And so I, I'm coming from the same, I feel like I've been interacting. It's calmed down greatly I, uh, with, the, with the owl stuff. Uh, and part of the reason it calmed down, I'm convinced, is I asked it to. I I went in the woods alone one time, and I said, "It's too much. You got to dial it down." I'm I'm unsettled to the point where I can't do good work because you're freaking me out. And I said it basically like that, you know, like thank you for all the owls. Now I get it. Back off. So when I said earlier, did you ask them to stop? You know, and and uh, to giving you skulls and that's I had to ask to have the owls stuff slow down and that was back in 2009 10 years ago so and it has dialed down and if I still get plenty of little owl winks but I was getting hit over the head so yeah well there there was some dark stuff that followed that that so folklorically speaking I I did a big no-no by not taking that I asked for something I was given a gift and I didn't take that in in folklore that's a that's a big no-no that's uh if the other give, especially if you ask for it, if you ask for something and you're given it, you take it. And I did not. And the next, I visited the park a couple of times after that. I looked for the the bottle of wine. By the way, I could see it uh, where I dropped it in that the hollow of that tree. And uh, the next time I went, it was gone. The time after that, it was back <laughs> right where I left it. And the time after that, it was gone again. So I don't know what that was. Again, if it's a person, they've got small hands. They're able to reach in there and, and grab it, and they brought it back and then took it again. I don't know. I don't know how that works. But um, about the third visit after that, um, my son and I were there, and uh, I got attacked by a rabid raccoon. And there were so many synchronicities that surrounded this event that I just couldn't help but think there was something weirder than just a random raccoon attack. And I, I honestly, I have to wonder if, if I didn't offend something there by, by not taking the gift. I mean, it, it talks about that in folklore and uh, very, as crazy as that sounds, I know it sounds wacky, but I can, I cannot. Nothing see, sounds wacky. Yeah. This, I, I get it. I totally follow this. I cannot, I cannot see it as a, as a random event because of the, the sheer number of synchronicities that surrounded it, which would take a whole other show to get into. But, uh, yeah, it was it was some pretty dark stuff, and and I pulled away from from that area for a good long time. Uh, I'm just kind of getting back to hiking there again, where I feel <laughs> I, I was uh, I was hiking with a, a very good friend there. He had never been, and he wanted me to show him around. And we we hike tons of other places. He had just never been there, and I was with him, and uh, there was a a horseshoe <laughs> alongside the trail that just hanging on a branch that. Uh, Again, this is just, you know, the feeling I got from it, you know, no mind speak, but the feeling I got from it was almost like an apology. It was almost like we're good now, like, like, you know, things are back to normal. But I kept away for a long time. I had very, very, uh, you know, I, I considered that a very dark kind of repercussion of uh, playing with this stuff. Well, you're not only playing with this stuff, you're also documenting it. You have a remarkable podcast series. You have a really impressive outpouring of books. You're doing the illustrations for the books. So, yes, an amazing outpouring of, of I will say, creative energy. 
because you're doing something, in my opinion, that uh, I guess the soul of the artist would do. This is a creative endeavor. And I have to thank you for that. And I also, I, we went a little long here. I'm totally fine with that. This was worth doing. Yes, we need to have you back on because we are barely scratching the surface of the research you've done as well as your own personal experiences. I'm happy to come back anytime, Mike. We'll have you back soon enough. Now, how do people get a hold of you? The easiest way is strangefamiliars.com. Now, that's my podcast website, but all of that contact information goes to me. It's a one-man show, pretty much. So that's the easiest way for people to find me. Timothy, thank you so much. This has been a delight. Thank you, Mike. This is Mike. I am chiming in after the editing. I just want to say thank you so much to Timothy and once again, I encourage anyone who is listening to this to go listen to his podcast titled Strange Familiars. It's really remarkable. And I also want to say that um, during this episode, boy, I sure had to kind of bite my tongue. I, I felt like I wanted to answer every single one of his his anecdotes, every single point in his stories and say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I know just how that feels. Timothy and I are on very similar paths. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. <laughs>